World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Luxury brands don't just sell expensive shoes and handbags. They sell an idea of exclusivity. But as these firms seek out new markets and younger consumers, the definition of luxury and the things they sell are starting to change. And for decades, on canvas, paper, film, and the stage, William Kentridge has explored the history and people of his native South Africa. Our culture correspondent visits a newly opened retrospective of his works in London. First up, though. Cobb County sits at the heart of Atlanta's sprawling northern suburbs. It's one of the richest and most populous areas in the state. Politically, I would say I am uh, fiscally conservative, but more socially liberal. I usually vote Republican, but there are certain issues that will make me swing the other way. Stephen Lenhart is a doctor, and his office in a strip mall in northern Cobb County is festooned with pictures of national parks he's visited. You know, it, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to just vote Republican down the line. I'm going to look at the candidates. So I, I do swing. And it's voters like Lenhard who are open to being persuaded and splitting their ticket that can swing elections. In this, the latest episode in our midterm series looking at power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're asking who swing voters are, how the parties are trying to reach them, and whether they'll determine who controls Congress. Between now and Election Day, we're going to different areas around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're headed to the burbs. The Economist midterm model suggests that control of the House of Representatives is likely to come down to about a dozen seats. So the choices of persuadable voters in swing districts could prove crucial. One solidly Republican, Atlanta's northern suburbs are now contested territory. So in 2016, I I voted for Trump. Trump was a businessman. He is a businessman. And I felt like that the country was not being run well like a business. It needs to be run like a business, being frugal, trying to do the right things. In 2016, Georgia went for Donald Trump. Cobb County voted for Hillary Clinton by about two points. Four years later, that margin grew. Joe Biden won the county by 14 points, and that swing included Lenhard. He didn't clear the swamp like he said he was going to do. So in 2020, I, I just couldn't vote for him. So I voted for Biden. Understanding what motivates voters like Lenhard and how they might cast their ballots this year is the sort of question that keeps political wonks up at night. Lenhard says he looks at the candidates themselves, their personalities and qualifications and positions, 
Some of the issues he cares about, like climate and taxes, are constant. But another one is front of mind this year. One of the big issues this year is the abortion issue. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, I'm looking at that issue a little bit more closely. But uh, in general, I'm looking for Republicans that are going to be more fiscally conservative and try to lower the taxes, things like that. Fondness for conservative candidates isn't unusual in this area. Newt Gingrich, a former House speaker whose hard-edged, uncompromising style helped make the Republican Party what it is today, represented parts of the county for 20 years. Where I remember first coming here, you're afraid to put those Democratic signs out and you go to the polls and they would hand you a Republican ballot because it was assumed that you lived here, you're, you know, in that area, you're Republican. Lisa Cupid is the Cobb County chairwoman. She's the county's highest elected official. And she's a Democrat, which would have been unthinkable just a decade ago. There have been a lot of changes to the county. Since the turn of the millennium, it's gone from being 70% white to 50. Both the African-American and Hispanic populations have almost doubled since then. I mean, I first came to Cobb County, I lived in East Cobb, and I remember not seeing many others that look like me. Now I drive through East Cobb. I see diversity everywhere. But greater diversity doesn't necessarily mean the county has gone blue. Cupid said much of the swing against Trump was just that, a swing against Trump. I've seen it written many times that Cobb County is now blue. I, I think it remains to be seen how permanent these changes are. I think a lot of that push was because our former president was on the ballot, and he's not on the ballot now. Plenty of Republican candidates aren't tying themselves too closely to the former president. I'm Mark Gonsalves, and I'm the Republican nominee for Georgia's 7th Congressional District. Georgia's 7th District is just over the border from Cobb in Gwinnett County, another fast-growing, demographically and politically changing area. And for Gonsalves, running in a politically heterodox district, there are things he'd rather not talk about, like who won the last presidential election. I'm going to let others decide the implications of the 2020 race for me. I'm laser-focused on my race. This is 2022. Our former president is not on the ballot. Uh, I'm the one that's on the ballot. When we speak, Gonsalves emphasizes freedom as the centerpiece of his campaign. Which of the freedoms, when you talk about it, seems to resonate the most in this particular district? Yeah, that's a great question. I would tell you that the freedom of speech is the one that is the biggest one, right? And I do think that government overreach is right there, closely followed behind it. But other freedoms less so. When it comes to abortion, Gonsalves says he's proud to be pro-life and only believes in an exception to protect the life of the mother. Swing voters come in different flavors depending on the election. Reagan Democrats, soccer moms, office park dads. Lenhard, the doctor, seems an archetype of the latter category. Suburban, well-off, socially liberal and fiscally conservative. But nationally, another demographic now predominates among swing voters. So the modal swing voter in our polling is a male Hispanic voter under the age of 30 who does not have a college degree and lives in a city. Elliot Morris is a data journalist at The Economist. He helps conduct our house poll, asking questions every week of 1,500 people. So I took a look at the last four months of polling. Swing voters are much less white than partisans. Uh, 17% of the group, according to our poll, is Hispanic. 
and only 9% of partisans are Hispanic. These non-whites are also disproportionately non-college educated compared to partisans. So 31% of them are non-white, non-college educated voters, which is nearly double the size of that same group among partisans. Swing voters are different from other voters in some ways. Perhaps predictably, they're markedly less enthusiastic to vote this year. But in other ways, swing voters look a lot like everyone else. They don't hold radically different opinions than the partisans do. In fact, the differences on our question asking respondents what their most important issue is are indistinguishable statistically among these groups on every question. So basically equal shares of consistent partisans and swing voters say they care about, say, the economy or abortion or immigration. But compared to partisans who vote for the same party every election no matter what, Swing voters' numbers are decreasing. We count swing voters as respondents to polls who tell us they voted for different parties over the last two presidential elections. That percentage now is less than 4%. And in 1990, that was closer to 15%. And in the 70s and earlier, it was maybe 20%. Uh, So that's a huge decline. In the Georgia suburbs... Swing voters are keenly fought over. This year, the governor's race is a rematch between Stacey Abrams, a Democrat, and the incumbent, Brian Kemp, a Republican. Abrams gained a national profile through her campaigns to improve voter outreach. Kemp threw his opposition to Donald Trump's attempt to overturn the election. That's one of the things that draws Lenhard, the doctor in Cobb County, to Kemp. I think that he stood up for what's right and he said, The votes just aren't here in Georgia. You you lost. I voted for Kemp last time, and I plan to vote for Kemp again. The big problem with Kemp is his abortion stance. He really wants to ban abortions, which I am not in favor of. So that's the one issue. But on so many other issues, I stand in his corner with gun control, with the taxes, things like that. And Stacey Abrams, I just think that she's too liberal I worry about her wanting to defund the police, which I'm not in favor of. But while Lenhardt is backing the Republican for governor, he's leaning a different way in Georgia's Senate race. That Senate race is one of the most closely watched in the country. The incumbent, Raphael Warnock, a Democrat, has had just 18 months in Washington. He won the seat in a special election in January 2021. We were told that we couldn't win this election. But tonight... We prove that with hope, hard work, and the people by our side, anything is possible. And I promise you that that election was close. He won by just two points. This year, he's running against Herschel Walker, a Republican who is beloved in Georgia. Named Herschel Walker was just trying to keep his head on straight under the bright lights of stardom. He was a star football player at the University of Georgia and then professionally. So I went to the University of Georgia, so I'm, I'm a Herschel fan. Herschel, unfortunately, I just don't think that he has any credentials to be a politician. He has no track record, really. And Warnock, I think that we need to give him some more time. And it's not just Lenhard who's expected to split the ticket. The Economist midterm model gives Warnock a two-thirds chance of winning, while Abrams is behind in the polls to Kemp. Ticket splitters and swing voters may be an increasingly rare breed, 
but they're not extinct yet. And with this year's election expected to come down to the wire, they could prove the deciding factor. For more coverage of America's upcoming elections, listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. This week, the crew discusses the American economy. You can also find all The Economist midterms coverage at economist.com slash midterms 2022. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This could be the sound of the future of fashion. Ore Ogunbi writes about luxury for The Economist. A viral video shows a lone, semi-nude supermodel, Bella Hadid, and she stood at the center of a fashion show, surrounded by a star-studded audience. There's mellow music playing, and you can hear faint hissing sounds. Two men are using spray guns to cover Hadid with what appears to be white paint. But a woman walks on stage and uses her hands to tidy up the paint. This woman pulls what turns out to be straps off the top of Hadid's shoulders, so they come to rest against her arms. She cuts a slit up one leg, and astonishingly, the paint becomes a form-fitting white dress that ripples with her movements as she struts out onto the catwalk. This piece by the young contemporary brand Caperni has created the biggest buzz at Paris Fashion Week, and it's forcing even bigger luxury brands to pay attention. Give us a brief introduction to the luxury brand market. Traditionally, what has defined it? Luxury brands are exclusive by definition. Historically, the industry has been centered around Western Europe. It expanded into the US and Japan as globalization really began to take off. And now it's also very big in China. Conglomerates like LVMH, who own Louis Vuitton, and then Kering, which owns Gucci, have dominated the market. But not much has changed for decades. It's super high-end products being sold to a very rich few, and they're making billions in revenues. But in the past two and a half years, they seem to be adapting and thinking a bit bigger. Some groups like LVMH, Louis Vuitton, and Hermes, are in vogue. Others, like Kering, look to be falling out of fashion. Caring, empowering imagination. The industry is becoming more geographically dispersed, less restricted by traditional definitions of luxury, and more conscious of its environmental footprint. But there's a divergence as the changes are paying off for some and less so for others. What's behind this divergence? So the entire personal luxury goods industry has seen a big boom recently even despite the pandemic. It's estimated that in the first quarter of this year, the market managed to grow 15% more than the same period in 2021. 
partly because of how well they've responded to shocks. They're trying to attract new, younger consumers and aspirational shoppers and stay relevant globally. So one way that they're adapting is by seeking new markets in places like the Middle East, where an oil price boom has shielded the rich from the worst of hyperinflation. A second way that they're adapting is by changing what constitutes luxury in order to better compete with some of these younger, more contemporary brands. But the luxury equation is a really delicate one. If you go too far the other way, you lose your core high-end customer who still prides luxury for its exclusivity. So some are striking the balance better than others if share prices are anything to go by. You mentioned that they're changing what constitutes luxury. Tell us about that change. How is the definition of luxury changing? So the biggest names in luxury are pretty old. Fendi, for example, used to be just a fur and leather shop when it was launched in Rome almost a century ago. The founder of Hermes made horse harnesses for French noblemen in the 19th century. And these kinds of brands have historically emphasized the importance of craftsmanship and exclusivity. But younger shoppers, who are becoming increasingly essential for the growth and longevity of these brands, care much more about self-expression and social media trends. They're also seemingly more keen on environmentalism, a term that doesn't really sit well with fur-loving luxury brands or the association of luxury with excess. So what does this shift look like in practice? Some brands are redefining luxury by broadening their product offerings, sometimes with collaboration. So Gucci recently launched a big one with Adidas, for example. Some brands are selling hair clips, trainers, card holders, and the teeniest of handbags, I mean like four inches, in a phenomenon that some people are calling miniaturization. So basically you sell smaller and smaller handbags for slightly cheaper in the hope that accessible consumers can afford them. Others are using patterns and styles that transcend seasons to build their brand's identity. So take Bottega Veneta's designs, for example, which are defined by a thatch-like weaving technique called antrecciato, which is now a consistent part of all their collections. And the role of the creative director is changing as well, as brands opt for people known for their artistic offerings and occasionally their cult following, rather than their technical fashion abilities. And then they're giving these creative directors liberty to redefine a brand's image. So, for example, in March this year, Ferragamo appointed a 26-year-old creative director, and he's already completely transformed the brand's logo. And you mentioned earlier the younger brands were becoming increasingly eco-friendly. What does that look like in practice? Yeah, so luxury brands are trying to be more sustainable. For example, Kering banned animal fur across all of its brands last year. So that's brands like Gucci, Saint Laurent, Bottega Veneta, Balenciaga, those kinds. Stella McCartney defines itself as a vegetarian company and makes bags from a material called mycelium, which is a network of filaments found in mushrooms, as opposed to using leather. Prada, Chanel, and lots of others all have initiatives in this area. The big luxury brands are slowly trying to lead by example and appeal to increasingly activist consumers. But it's challenging because obviously the luxury industry has a reputation for excess that seems at odds with these sustainability goals. And presumably also because these brands need to be exclusive and rare to maintain their luxury status, right? Exactly. The whole industry and and your status as a luxury brand is predicated on being and staying exclusive. 
One luxury brand boss told me that products need to evolve to be more precious and more sophisticated so that you sell it for a higher price. So the goal is to sell less in terms of volume, but at a higher price point. That's the equation of luxury. And you have to maintain this even if you're trying to appeal to the preferences of diverse customer groups and people on the lower end. It's how Prada explains selling a bag made of plastics for a comparable price to one made of leather, or Saint Laurent selling $800 trainers. Also, this perception of exclusivity is itself valuable, especially in times of crisis like COVID. So the recent share price of ultra-luxury brand Hermes considerably outpaced competitors because rare $50,000 Birkin handbags are actual investment commodities. And then the higher margins of accessories and footwear over fashion, especially at the top end, have also helped to set apart luxury's real post-pandemic winners. So yes, in short, some disruption in the industry is happening, but slowly and cautiously, because if you're a luxury brand, these changes cannot come at the expense of exclusivity. All right. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, John. Policy is one which is called by an Afrikaans word, apartheid. And I'm afraid that is being misunderstood so often. As a young man, William Kentridge had wanted to be a conductor, but that wasn't to be. Fiametta Rocco is senior editor and culture correspondent for The Economist. He worked at drawing, at painting, and also very much in the theatre. His art-loving parents were both anti-apartheid lawyers and civil rights activists. His father defended Nelson Mandela in the treason trials of the late 50s and early 60s. Much of his work looks at South African history, at the environment, at the injustices and the depredations. He's never been a political artist in the sense of being an activist. He believes that the artist should look after the art and the politics will look after itself. When Leonard Cohen says, there's a crack in everything, that's where the light gets in. It's in the cracks that William Kentridge is working. His mediums became many, his subjects very, very wide-ranging. In addition to the inequities of his native South Africa, first under apartheid and then under democratic rule, he's also fascinated by the Russian Revolution, the great colonial wars of the 20th century, and the terrible leaders, the terrible dictators that the world has seen over the last hundred years. Whether it's Stalin or Lenin or Trotsky or those who invented and insisted on apartheid or Putin for that matter, of course one can't not think of Putin at this point, he points to the ridiculous, the weak, the vain, the implacably awful. He's now 67 and for many people that would be the brink of retirement, but William Kentridge is having a moment. The Royal Academy of Arts in London has just opened a huge retrospective of his work that fills 12 of its galleries and covers his whole career, from his early charcoal works on paper from the late 1960s through to his explorations for the theatre 
And then there's this series of documentary films he's been making in his studio during lockdown, which have just had their premiere at the Toronto Film Festival. They're called Self-Portrait as a Coffee Pot, typical Kentridge title. They're almost an anthropological study of what happens when the artist enters the studio and closes the door. In that moment, the artist's imagination is set free in a way to do its miraculous work. I think of myself as an artist making drawings. Even when the charcoal is replaced by a spoken word or by an ink word, where we are led by a line, in this case by an ink line, a kind of lapidary thinking and drawing, an embroidery of words and lines. There's a new five-screen installation at the Goodman Gallery in London, his long-time gallerists. Oh, to Believe in Another World is a stop-motion film set to Dmitry Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony. Shostakovich composed the symphony around the time of Joseph Stalin's death in 1953. Its explosive second movement is said to evoke state terror, the many ways it has of driving people mad, its pettiness, its capricious nature, its cruelty, its deviousness, and its never-ending implacability. Musically, this movement is a scherzo, and it could be said to be pretending to be good Russian music. But Shostakovich always described it as a musical portrait of Stalin, and Kentridge makes full use of its sly character. He made his film on a small-scale theatrical stage, really quite tiny, not more than four or five feet wide. It's made of cardboard, and it has pillars and porticos and galleries, lots of sort of hidden things that can have secret alcoves. Using a tiny camera on a stick, he's able to take the viewer right into the entrails of this setting. And through the use of tiny little marionettes, he explores Shostakovich's attitudes towards Stalin and the Soviet Union. This work feels like a collage, Like much of Kentridge's work, it implies that history itself is a process of eliding, distorting and stitching things back together. For the impatient viewer, this moment can feel like hours. The works are noisy, they're confusing, but it's really worth persisting. One of the hard things to realise, Kentridge says, is the edge of who one is, of what your imagination can produce. And with that, he steps back into the studio, his secret place. He reaches for a new stick of charcoal, another sheet of white paper, and you really get the feeling that for him as an artist, everything becomes possible again. And in the end, we are reduced to making ourselves as a self-portrait, a self-portrait as a rhinoceros, a self-portrait as a typewriter, a self-portrait as a coffee pot, a self-portrait as a megaphone, all that we wish we could be.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys' club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.